the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. A couple of months ago, Bono and U2 came to the football stadium at the University of Oklahoma. Our younger son Jason and his wife Janet went to that concert. Uh, one of Jason's very best friends at Southern Methodist University went on to the medical school in Iowa and is now a physician in Des Moines, Iowa. He and his wife have relatives in the Oklahoma City area, and so they flew down, visited relatives, and the four of them then went to the U2 concert. The next day after church, I was asking Jason and Janet how the concert went. They said, oh, it was wonderful, really, really good. And the lead act, almost as good. And I said, and who was that? The Black Eyed Peas. And I said, well, of course, of course, who else? Dr. Eugene Peterson, in his translation of this passage, says of John, I'm just the stagehand. The real event is just now coming on stage. Let's take a look at this passage today. I begin with the part from Isaiah. A voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And John appeared in the wilderness. Now I've been to Israel five times and I can tell you that the word translated wilderness here, you and I would more likely translate desert desert. The desert which is immediately south of Jerusalem, almost at the city limit sign, you enter the desert and you can drive miles without seeing a sprig of anything green, horned toads. Occasionally, if you look very carefully, one of the little horned goats, the ibex, really desolate country. But think about what the wilderness meant to the people of Israel. Moses Moses born in slavery in Egypt. Just at the time the Pharaoh decided that these slaves of his were breeding too many babies, and therefore he would have all babies under the age of two put to death. Moses' mother fashioned a basket. The word used in Hebrew is exactly the same word used of the time when Noah built an ark. His mother, Moses' mother, built a little ark the description of how she puts pitch and bitumen inside it, tar, exactly the same expressions used of Noah's preparation of the ark. So when once all of humankind, according to the ancient storyteller, floated in one little boat, so Israel's history is floating down the Nile River in a, another ark. Moses' mother has sent his older sister to follow along in the bulrushes, watching the little basket as the river takes it downstream. She knows that Moses' daughter, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, likes to bathe in the Nile River, and that if she ever gets a look at this baby, she will not be able to harm it. It is such a precious child. Of course, it happens. Pharaoh's daughter sees the basket, sees the baby, wants to take it home with her. Moses' older sister says, I know a woman who would be glad to nurse it for you. And so Moses grows up in Pharaoh's palace, 
being mentored and tutored by his own mother about the Israelite people. After he is a man, one day he sees an Egyptian mistreating one of his own, and he gets so angry he strikes out and kills the Egyptian. And then he runs 150 miles into the wilderness. A lot of time passes, and then one day Moses sees a bush on fire, not being consumed by the fire. And when he walks over a little closer, a voice speaks to his deepest heart, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and free my people. Moses goes back, God visits plague upon plague upon Pharaoh until finally after the tenth one he says, Go! And Moses and the people move in the middle of the night without waiting for the bread to rise. They get to the sea and see the Egyptians close behind. You know where Moses is heading. He's going to the wilderness. Back to the wilderness. He will go to that very same mountain where the name was given to him, where he was sent uh, to Egypt. He will go to that same mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and help God's people become a separate community who understand their role to try to convince the rest of the world there's only one God. Move 200 years down the road. There's a boy keeping watch over sheep and goats one day when his father calls him into the house. When he goes into the house, he sees a strange fellow there by the name of Samuel. Samuel, who believes he's been sent by God to this small house in a little nowhere place called Bethlehem to select the second king of Israel. He's looked at all the older brothers. He's felt that God was not pointing him to any one of them. He asked, is there no other son? One more. He's watching the sheep and goats. Bring him in. When David came in, Samuel said, this is the one. And he anointed this child to be the next king of the Jews. The only problem was they had a king named Saul. And Saul eventually became jealous of David and decided to kill him. And where did David run? To the desert, to the wilderness. We've been to En Gedi, down on the bank of the Dead Sea. Five different times we've been to that place where David ran. And when he came back... He was bigger and stronger, more courageous and more capable than ever before. Skip a couple hundred years. The tribes have separated again, north and south. Ten in the north, two in the south. The northern ones are being ruled over by a ruthless king named Ahab with a conniving wife named Jezebel. They have turned to the gods of fertility. Baal, we usually call them, but it's really Baal. The prophets of Baal, Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to meet him on the top of Mount Carmel over near modern-day Haifa to have a contest. Whose God can light the fire on the altar without any help? The prophets of Baal march around, march around, slashing their wrists, doing all kinds of incantations, nothing. And then Elijah calls on the God of the Israelites, and there is fire. So he does to these prophets what David did to Goliath. He puts his foot on their neck and cuts their heads off. The blood of 400 prophets goes pouring down Mount Carmel and into the Jezreel River. And when it gets all the way down to the palace, Jezebel said, As the blood of my prophets 
so the blood of Elijah. The dogs will lick his blood in the streets. And Elijah ran. Where did he run? To the desert, to the wilderness. He ran almost 200 miles. And then it was not in the thunder, not in the lightning, but in a still, small whisper that God spoke to him. Are you living in the desert? Would you like to be in a quiet place where the stars shine brighter than ever and where God Almighty will whisper to your deepest heart? Number two. John's message is about repentance, Mark says. It's about repentance. Now, this word in Greek is metanoia, and it usually means change of mind. But Mark was a Jew. Uh, the other writers of the New Testament, maybe with the exception of Luke, are Jews. And their word in Hebrew would have been sub, S-U-B. And sub means to turn or even to return. It's used in any number of places in the Bible to describe people who are going away from God, who decide they need to turn, be turned, return to God Repentance, to change one's mind, to have one's whole direction changed, to move back, back toward God. I told you recently about Elizabeth Bolton. She's a woman pastor up in Boston, Massachusetts. For this season of the year, she has written that only a woman who's given birth can really understand all those passages in the New Testament about how the whole of creation is in labor pains. She said when she and her husband were expecting their first baby, she was so excited. I had really wanted to be a mother all my life, I think, she said, and I was so excited about birthing this baby. My husband was being really helpful and supportive. He went to the classes with me. We learned how I was supposed to go, and then push, and then breathe again, and then push. I had it down. He had it down. We were ready to do this. Every time I looked in the mirror, my tummy was getting bigger and bigger, and I was so excited, she said. I looked, and as it got bigger and bigger, and I weighed more and more, no stretch marks, piece of cake, I said. And then came that moment that became hours and hours of push, push. And finally, I was squeezing this woman's hand, saying, I can't do this. She said, but you are doing this. You are doing this. And our precious child was born into the world. But the next time I got a good look at myself in the mirror, stretch marks, spider veins running down my legs I had never seen before. And I realized that birthing babies is serious business and takes much on behalf and from the woman who births it. John stands down by the river Jordan in the desert saying, You brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? I say to you, repent. 
bear fruits worthy of repentance. And we say, John, I can't do this. And he says, oh, yes, you can. There's one coming right behind me who's going to help you. Number three, forgiveness. Repentance for forgiveness. Not, not just being forever sorry for all the troubles of the world, but knowing that, in fact, God has turned us and is helping us return to God. That by God's grace, we can stand right with God again. We can be forgiven. Dr. John Ortberg is a Presbyterian minister out in Menlo Park, California. He has written about last spring when he and his wife's daughter was graduating from Azusa Pacific University. We were so proud of our daughter. He said she had worked hard and now was the big day of graduation. And lo and behold, John's wife, a professor, was asked if she would give the commencement address. So he said it made it extra special. Our daughter, one of the honor graduates, my wife giving commencement address. So, of course, I got to go along with them and be a part of a special luncheon group, having lunch with the president of the university, the board of trustees. The president of the university stood at one point and said, I want all of you who love our university so much to meet three very special graduates. And he called them into the room. He said, these three are three of our best and our brightest, and they've all three agreed to go to one of the most impoverished areas of the world to try to make a difference. He said, everyone in the room applauded these three. They looked sort of shy, a little bit sheepish. Then the president walked over to one and said, someone whom you do not even know does not want you to be distracted in any way from the wonderful work you're about to do. So your student loans of $70,000 have been forgiven. And she started to tremble. He turned to the second and said, Someone whom you do not even know does not want you to be distracted, but be focused on the wonderful work you're about to do. Your student debt of $110,000 has been forgiven. And he turned to the third and said, we know you came here with very few resources, but you've given it everything you've got. And we know you will do that in your new responsibilities. So someone whom you do not know wants you not be distracted, wants you to be focused on giving the best you have. Your $130,000 in student loans have been forgiven. John Ortberg says... You know, I'm not sure I ever quite saw forgiveness in such a dramatic way. The three of them stood there with tears now coursing their cheeks and all of us standing and applauding. Wow. Wow. How wonderful not to have to carry this heavy load that would encumber you and keep you from being focused on that which really matters. A right relationship with God and with all others whom God has created. Number four. Mark begins his gospel by saying, the beginning of the Uagalion of Jesus Messiah, the Son of God. Now, Uagalion is a word used to describe great events in the life of the Roman Caesar. Um, when the Caesar comes to majority, when the Caesar gets married, when there's an heir to the throne, 
Uagalion, good news. And Mark uses this word to say the beginning of the Uagalion of Jesus Messiah, the Son of God. Good news. This stagehand is just getting everything set for the one who's bringing good news to all the world. Charlotte Chavez has said that some of our best Christmas stories have come out of war times. She described Christmas Day back during the Civil War. General Sherman believed he could bring the war to a close much quicker by cutting across the South with a scorched earth policy. You may recall that he burned the city of Atlanta, Georgia to the ground. Every farmhouse, every barn he came to, he burned to the ground. Livestock were sent scurrying away. And on Christmas, he sent a telegram to President Lincoln saying, I have a new Christmas present for you, Savannah, Georgia. Every gun, every animal, and 25,000 bales of cotton for you. But some of General Sherman's soldiers had seen the devastation wrecked upon the people of Georgia. And they found a few branches in the woods, somehow affixed them to the bridles on their mules, loaded their wagons with provisions, and drove them through the countryside, giving food to people who were facing almost certain starvation. But the next day, they went back to war. On another battlefield in the Civil War, where we lost more to death than any other war this country has ever fought, when fighting was really up close and personal, one Christmas Eve night, the Confederates and the Union forces just a few yards apart in the darkness, and the Confederates began to sing Dixie, and the Union soldiers began to sing Yankee Doodle. And then Dixie louder, and then Yankee Doodle louder, but when both sides had sung their songs, someone started singing Silent Night. And men in both clumps of trees began to sing. Enough of them knew Charles Wesley's hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. They began to sing. And then they sang Joy to the World. It was a quiet night, and they slept. But the next morning, they started shooting at each other again. Gail and I have been in Flanders fields, where poppies grow between the crosses, row on row. During World War I, on a cold Christmas Eve night, when the muddy bogs had frozen rock hard, the German forces began to sing Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht, and the British forces a few hundred yards away began to sing Silent Night, Holy Night, and the whole night went without a single rifle fire, but the next morning they began again. When we were fighting in Korea, one small group of soldiers were given R&R just before Christmas. They were sent to Japan. There wasn't enough time for them to go home, and so in Japan, with a few days off, <clears throat> they were trying to think just what it would be like to be home, how wonderful to be with their children, with their spouses, with parents and aunts and uncles and cousins. 
And then someone remembered, but Christmas is not really about what you get. Christmas is about what you give. And so he proposed that they find an orphanage and that they take presents and they decorate a tree and they sing carols to children. And that's what they did. They sang all the best known carols they could sing by heart. And the next morning they were flown back to Korea to fight again. Maybe this year, maybe this year, the day after Christmas, no guns, only more singing. Amen.